Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and uh, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 9. And uh, we've been navigating through this series entitled, We Want a King. And by now, uh, my hope is that you would have internalized kind of this series idea. Uh, this is week five, and we've been coming back to this since the very first one. And that series idea being that true success is only achieved when? When the Lord leads, everyone say the Lord. True success is only achieved when the Lord leads. And that's in every scenario, every situation, every circumstance. And this ultimately should be what we fall back into as the church. Okay? And this is, this was planned in, in the scope of our year in tangent with uh, approaching uh, this fall and knowing the 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 tensions that are common, and yet we had absolutely no idea just how intense those things would become uh, when we put this all into motion last fall. And uh, I praise the Lord for the way that He even in those preparations was setting us up to learn and grow beyond what we even knew was coming. And this really ultimately kind of brings me to the main idea of today in the scope of understanding that true success is only achieved. It only happens when we allow God to be the one who's leading us, who's impacting, who's transforming. But specifically today as we close out our time in 1 Samuel for this season, the main thing I want you to walk away from this specific message with, jot this down, is that The Lord is in control even when we turn from His leading. The Lord is in control even when we turn from His leading. At the end of the day, the control that God has over the present day and the future does not change. And we're going to see this specifically in the next portion of Samuel, chapters 9 and 10 is what we're going to look at today. And understand, in order to to grasp why this is significant, is because as we've seen from chapter 1 up until this point, there's this cycle, right? And you go back further, there's this cycle. And we know that Samuel is is the, the final period of the period of the judges and... You see at the beginning of this that uh, Israel is in this situation where they're in bondage to the Philistines. And just like what has happened previously in the book of Judges, over and over and over and over and over again, it's happening again. Well, God raises up this man named Samuel and the people decide, oh man, it's just like Judges. Here's another leader. Let's go out into war. We're going to save ourselves. And they fall flat on their face. 
multiple times over. And go fast forward a little bit, you see God actually defeats and delivers them without any army needed. He brings them out of that place and establishes them once again with Samuel leading and judging over them. Then we get to chapter 8, and really 7 and 8, and we see that Samuel was getting old. He tried to pass on the leadership of the nation to his sons, and his sons did not follow the Lord. So the leadership came to Samuel and said, Samuel, we've got a solution. You're old. Your sons don't follow the Lord. Here's the solution. You give to us an earthly king. Samuel wasn't happy with this. Everyone say, not happy. And so he goes to the Lord and the Lord says, Samuel, you need to recognize they're rejecting me, not you. But you need to warn them. You need to warn them what's going to come if they put their hope and set their sights on an earthly king, an earthly leader. And we talked about those warnings last week. And you see that in the second half of chapter 8. Where he goes through, boom, 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 boom. This is what you should expect. And we talked about expectations. We shouldn't be surprised when an earthly leader rules in an earthly way. Because they're human. And at the end of all of that, the people still choose to disobey. And they want an earthly king. Church, we're just like this. We repeat this same cycle. And oftentimes we look to earthly leaders or rulers to be the solution in the midst of this. And so what we're going to see today in in chapters 9 and 10 is this reality that even in the midst of God allowing the people to have a earthly leader, an earthly king, in how God goes about bringing this to be, He's still the one in control. And so as we step into this, let's just pause a minute, let's pray that the Lord would guide our thoughts and our discussion here, and then we're going to jump into the beginning of chapter 9 and walk through this together. Father, we recognize our tendency to pursue an earthly king. We know and can give lip service to the reality that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that you alone are God, and yet our lives and the internal aspects of who we are declares something completely contrasting to that. So today... Father, open our eyes. Help us to see from this narrative your control and your longing for your people to see you as the authority in in our lives and in your church. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start in verse 1. And what what this is going to look like is we're going to read little sections of chapters 9 and 10 and walk through this narrative together. And uh, then we'll summarize other sections and we're going to draw out some main teaching points, some main application points for you to consider as we look at this today. Chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, verse 1, it says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. 
Now pause here for a second. Isn't it interesting that here we've come full circle, the nation of Israel is demanding a earthly leader, and in the first two verses we have this description of a man named Saul, who indeed is going to become this earthly leader for the nation of Israel, and these descriptions of him, I just have to laugh, because they're the most earthly important things that you could think of, right? The first one out of the gate is he's a man, he comes from a wealthy family. Man, they've got influence. They've been successful. He's a man of wealth. Secondly, he's pretty good looking. He's not an ugly guy. And man, if we want an earthly leader, you wouldn't want him to look bad, would you? And the third one cracks me up. I don't know if you see this. Most people read that third description and they think, oh, Saul was a tall man. But what it says is, from his shoulders upwards, there was no one taller. In other words, he had a really long neck. <laughs> or a really tall head, either one. I'm not sure, but the description there is, is something that's interesting, right? But this is somehow of importance in the grand scheme of this. And it just brings me back to this reality that when we consider... An earthly leader, how often appearances is what we consider to be really important. And in fact, later on in the narrative of Samuel, when God appoints David, that's where we see this passage that's so often quoted, where it says, man looks on what? The outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so if you've ever heard that quoted, recognize that's in this whole narrative of Samuel, okay? And specifically in relation to who God sees and appoints as people who are leading rather than mankind. And so from the very beginning we see mankind elevating almost and emphasizing these things that are of earthly importance, which in the grand scheme of things don't really mean anything at all. Now, Saul here is actually sent, in the, in the next part of this narrative, his, his dad's donkeys get out, okay? And they, they go missing, and so Saul and his servant head out on this journey, essentially to find the donkeys. They're on a donkey hunt. And this is what God uses, essentially, to connect Saul and Samuel is in this journey. And so they're looking for these donkeys. They can't find them. Saul says to his servant, you know what, we should probably go home because at this point, my dad's going to be less concerned about the donkeys. He's going to be more concerned about where we're at. And the servant talks Saul into saying, well, there's this man named Samuel not far from here. And let's go to him because whatever he says seems to come true. So maybe this guy can help us. And so fast forward a little bit. Now jump to verse 15 with me. And this is all taking place. And uh, now we see kind of the other side, so switch scenes over to Samuel. In verse 15 of chapter 9, it says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be, a, be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now, the first point I want to draw out of this, I don't know if you've seen this or not, in verse 16 specifically, is that God's control is seen in His faithfulness. God's control is seen in His faithfulness. 
If you consider what has taken place here, and you put yourself in God's shoes, how many times, Israel, do you have to do this before God just loses his stuff? Right? How many times, again and again, is God going to have to save the people of Israel before he just says, I'm done, I'm through, I'm shutting you out, I'm starting, I'm, I'm done. But instead, in verse 16, what do we see? We see God specifically hearing the cries of his people, the same people that have been through this cycle over and over and over and over and over again. And yet, he says, I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. He cares. He's faithful. He's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his covenants. Even when his people are no longer looking to him to lead them. The Lord is in control even when we turn from his leading. This is emphasized again in Second Timothy chapter 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In other words, it is in and of God's character to be faithful. He is not a deceiver. He is not short-tempered. He is not sitting in on his throne and somehow going, you guys are screwing up everything. It's not what he's doing. Why? Because no matter what's happening around us, no matter how much we feel out of control, God is still in control. Every day, every hour, every moment, and he models that by his faithfulness to his promises. You will never see a season where God gets up off his throne in a huff and walks out of the room to another place because he's fed up with humanity. Because God is still in control. It's seen in his faithfulness. Now, Samuel invites Saul at this point, they connect on the road, he invites Saul to come up with him to the high places. The high places was where sacrifices were made. And so they go to this place and they dine together, they eat, and then as they're coming down and going back, uh, Samuel encourages Saul to have his servant go on ahead so that Samuel could share with Saul the word of the Lord. This is the point where Samuel is to share with Saul, you're going to be the prince of Israel. God's going to use you to deliver his people. And so let's jump over now to chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. It says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. And kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. 
And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hands find, your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Now this draws out, church, the second emphasis that I want to encourage you to note, and that is God's control is never thwarted by man's plan. God's control is never, everyone say never, It's never thwarted by man's plan. This is restated in Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 19 verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of who? The Lord. Everyone say the Lord. It's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And so even in the midst of this, where... Samuel is specifically communicated from God to the people. You people are rejecting God as the authority in your life. And God allows for this earthly king to be raised up. You see God himself in the details of this. And specifically, if you look at verses 6 and 7, the sign of this coming to be for Saul, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. You'll prophesy with them and be turned into another man. When these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. In other words, no matter how much the nation of Israel is going to try and put this responsibility in the hands of another person, another human being, Even out of selfish motive, we want to be like the other nations. We want someone to fight our battles for us. God is still the one steering the ship. God is the one who calls people up out and uses them for His purpose, for His plan, and never once in the scheme of all of this, past, present, or future, is He ever out of control. Church, that includes today. No matter who is in leadership, no matter what is taking place around us and how chaotic it is, and I'm not denying any of that, okay? I agree. And it is scary to look out and see all of that and to wonder what is going on. But at the end of the day, for the follower of Christ, for the person who knows their Bible, they know that God is still in control. That hasn't changed. No matter how out of control your life seems, He's still in control. And guess what? Next year, He's still going to be in control. 
And in fact, better yet, if you read the entirety of your Bible, you know how the story ends. You know what the hope is that we have in the future. But so often we become distracted because our plans are are thwarted and changed and shifted and we automatically assume because I feel out of control, God must just be completely out of control and in a panic. No. No. That falls into the category of putting God in our image rather than seeing that we're made in the image of Him. Okay? The Lord is in control even when we turn from His leading. Now, Look with me at verse 9 of chapter 10. It says, When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Here's what this emphasizes once again, and you could see this in the previous passages as well. God's control is seen as He empowers mankind. And more specifically, he, as He empowers mankind for His purposes. Everyone say His. His purposes, not ours. Now, the amazing truth in that, and we spent some time previously studying the work of the Spirit of God, okay? Studying His filling work, studying His transformational work. And at the end of the day, God does empower us. That is true today. But we're, church, we're often not looking for Him to empower us because we feel like, I got this, I am strong, I am able, I am capable. And the truth of the gospel is, no, you're not. The truth of the gospel is that you need a Savior, you need the help of the Spirit, because you might be able to do okay with what's responsibility here on earth, but with the stuff that's lasting and eternal, there's no chance. There's no chance. God's control is seen as He empowers mankind. God is the very one who breathed life into mankind and all creation. Why would we assume if we depend upon God for the very life in our bones that we wouldn't need Him in every aspect of our life thereafter? Time and time again, God uses people to accomplish His purposes and he almost always seems to use the people who we would think the most ill-equipped, right? People like Moses, people like David, the prophets. Not people you and I might pick on our own. And God continues to do that today. Why? Because when we recognize our weakness, God is the one who gets all the glory for anything that takes place, not us. Look with me at verse 17 now of chapter 10. It says, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today... You have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, 
Present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And what takes place after this is the people come and God has already worked all of this out, but He has the the nations come together, the twelve tribes of Israel, and lots are cast, and the tribe of Benjamin is drawn out of that. So then all the families of the tribe of Benjamin come forward, lots are cast, and it's the family of Saul that's called out. And then they end up uh, identifying that, well, it's none of these guys in Saul's family. Where, where is this man? And I, this is another one of those where you just have to laugh. If you look at verse 22... And they asked the question, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. They ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. So in other words, right out of the gate, church, you recognize this? Saul knows what's coming. And he doesn't tell anyone about this when he gets back home. And then when this is all happening, he's hiding among the baggage. He's just hidden there. Right out of the gate. And I can only imagine, like, there, I, I almost, when I read this, and this is me reading from a human perspective, but I almost read some sarcasm in God's response here. He's among the baggage. Go get him. Here's your king. Here's your earthly leader that you wanted, you demanded. Right after he said, today you have rejected your God who saves you. And... Here he is, bring him out and establish him. And the people just celebrate. They celebrate this earthly leader that's been raised up. Now what you find, and as you continue reading the narrative in Samuel, you find that Saul started off really prominent and really good. And over time, he became selfish and he made decisions before God told him to make those decisions. And he sacrificed ultimately his ability for his lineage to continue forward. And God raises up David and ultimately provides a savior through the lineage of David. But you see this pattern over and over once again with these earthly kings. You read through the books of Kings, you read through Chronicles, and you start to see these earthly leaders function in earthly ways, and many of them did not follow the ways of the Lord. And it goes back to the question, what should we expect? Now this brings us to our one application question really for this whole series. Who is your king? And whether you recognize it or not, every one of us has an answer to this question. And I would say most of the time, our answer to this question is probably not the accurate answer. Especially if you've grown up in the church because you hear this question and automatically you respond with the Bible answer. Jesus is my king. God is my king. He's the authority in my life. And I will question, is he really? It's easy to say that. It's easy to acknowledge when I'm around other people who are like that. Who would the people outside the church say my king is? Who would my spouse and my children say my king is? Who Who are the friends closest to me say my king is? Do they even know that, that I'm a follower of Christ? Do they, do they even recognize any of this? Now, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, all right, what are some ways that maybe we unconsciously reject God as our authority? Because we see a really blatant example of this in the nation of Israel. 
But what are some ways we reject God as our king? And I'm just going to give you four examples, and it could be more than that. So I want you to challenge yourself with what this looks like for the church. Example number one, when we convince ourselves that the only hope we have is for an earthly leader. This is similar to what we see the nation of Israel doing in 1 Samuel. The only hope we have is for an earthly leader. If we state that, or we live that, or our attitudes reflect that, we reject God as our ultimate authority. Because with God as our ultimate authority, we know that none of this here is going to work out well until Jesus comes again. Second example, when we allow idols to be the primary influencers in our lives. Idols can look like a lot of things. It can be the screen in front of our face. It can be the news outlet that we depend on for quote-unquote truth. Big quote-unquote. Okay? It can be a person. It can be my job. It can be my bank account. It can, you fill in the blank. We talked about idolatry in the midst of this. It could be anything that we bring up to the level that God is. When we allow idols to be the primary influence in our lives, we reject God as our ultimate authority. Third example, when we allow speculation or conspiracy to drive us more than truth. Church, cut this out. I am so tired of this. Okay? And we are riddled with conspiracy right now. That is not what motivates us to be like Christ. And when we see things on the news or on social media, you check and check again and then you go, does this change the mission that God has given us or not? And if the answer is no, you leave it alone. You put it away. And I become so frustrated when the people of Christ taint the name of Jesus all because... Something may not seem like it is around here on earth. No, it's not. We don't have any idea. But we do know what is true. My goodness, we've got to live this out, church. When we allow those things to drive us more than the Word of God Himself, we reject God as our ultimate authority. Fourth example, when we reject the gospel as the only way to salvation. When we reject the gospel, Ephesians 2, you are saved by grace through faith. This is not of works. If we claim any other gospel, Paul identifies in Galatians 1, which we're going to study in a few weeks here, that there isn't another gospel, but we allow ourselves to believe there is. And if we move in any direction other than salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone, we reject God as the ultimate authority in our life. Church, here's the hard reality, okay? I'm, I'm, I just want to share a practical application of this series, a burden on my heart as your pastor, and a way that we can bring this home and be of the light of Jesus this, the, in these coming months. Okay, in just around 70 days... 
we're going to face what I believe could be one of the most divisive election seasons in our lifetimes. Based on what's led up to this, I don't know what the future holds, okay? But regardless of how this all plays out, I'm going to give you two things that I guarantee are going to happen. Okay? One, whoever wins in this election will be human and will fail you. God told us about that. He told the nation of Israel that. Here's all the things you should expect from an earthly leader. Don't be surprised when earthly leaders rule in earthly ways. Doesn't matter who wins, that will be the truth. Okay? The second reality here is that there will be people continuously upset and divided regardless of what the result is. It's going to be the case. The unpredictable element for the church is how we will respond to these truths. I don't know. I don't know how you're going to respond. But as we navigate and as we think about this, how will I respond if the person who I think should win this election doesn't win? How will you respond? When a brother or sister in Christ hatefully ridicules another brother or sister in Christ, how will you respond? Will you join sides? Or are you going to look at Scripture and go, whoa, 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 we are to speak the truth in love? We are to be graceful? Our speech is to be seasoned with salt? These are all words of Scripture? You don't talk to another brother and sister in Christ that way. Are we, are we more concerned about our own opinion? Or are we concerned about living out what God has called the church to be and to do? How will you respond? Family, we have a God who is in control right now. He's never been out of control. He sees the whole picture. In your lifetime, you will never see the whole picture. But what you will see, church, is the fruit of who or what you put your allegiance in. You will see the fruit of that come to be. In your marriages, in your homes, in your relationships, and within our community. If my allegiance is to the King of Kings then what I fight for should be what He fights for. What I speak out against should be what He commands. What I hold to be true should be revealed in His Word. And the kingdom I represent should be visible to all those around me. Who is your King, church? How will you respond to these tumultuous times? It's going to keep coming. My prayer for us is that we would be so possessed by God that no matter what changes around us in this culture, we root into what we know our mission and our calling is from the Word of God. And we pursue that with a passion, knowing what Jesus has already done for each and every one of us. Our security 
is found in him. We want a king. Who or what is yours, church? Father, this is challenging. This is something that we need your help with. And God, ultimately, at the end of the day, I ask that this community would see our allegiance as the church to a different kingdom. God, that we would hold fast to the truth of your word. That we would fight for the things you fight for. We would speak out against the things that you have stated should not be. That we would faithfully live as ambassadors for Christ. God, renew us today. Motivate us. Energize us by your spirit. I pray this in the name of Jesus.